you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. If uh, you've been with us a while, you may be unfamiliar with the pattern that we're about to begin. Uh, I am uh, committed to systematic expository preaching, just walking through the, the scriptures. And uh, we have two times a year where we might step back and pivot from that pattern. And one of those is around the Advent Christmas season and the other is around Easter. And so what we do there is let the, the, the church calendar, uh, we all live by calendars, but we let the church calendar speak uh, so that we do not forget some of the really essential truths of Scripture. And here is one of them, that there is, is joy in the coming of Christ. And His incarnation literally changes everything. And so when we come to Luke chapter 1 this morning, we recognize that that does break our pattern. But, but we've been in Mark, and Mark does not have a birth narrative, as you've seen. Only Matthew and Luke have those. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at various songs of Advent. So today, we'll look at Mary's song. Next week, uh, God willing, we'll be looking at Zechariah's song. Uh, Two weeks from now, Josh, Lord willing, will preach from the song of the angels. And then on the 24th, uh, it's my plan to preach from the song of Simeon, which is in Luke chapter 2. Today, though, we pick up at Mary's song. Luke chapter 1, I'll give you a little context. The angel Gabriel has already come and shared with Mary the fact that she is going to be the one who carries uh, the, the Messiah in her own womb. And so we pick up, having left her hometown of Nazareth, she goes down to see her, uh, we, we think probably a great aunt, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, it's an 80-mile journey. Verse 39 of, Mar- of Luke chapter 1. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Almighty God, we ask that as your humble servants would would listen to your word, that you would send it forth and you would do what you've promised to do in the prophet Isaiah. That you would send forth your word and you would accomplish the purposes for which you send it and it would not return void. 
Oh God, we ask that you would give us the ears to hear what you would say to your people. And I pray again that you would be willing to use a sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. When it comes to understanding the various parts of the Bible, you have to remember that, that context is, is king. In other words, you must allow the context of a particular passage to reign and rule over your understanding, in fact, to guide you in interpretation. <clears throat> That's true everywhere in the Bible. It's nowhere more true than when you come to Mary's song of praise because the context sets the stage for the words that she sings of God's goodness. Luke, who was a physician, was also uh, an excellent historian. And we know by studying the book of Luke that he gathered his information from lots of different sources. But you can tell when you read this particular passage that Luke spoke directly with Mary. And in reading this, what you get is her angle. And in a sense, that angle from her perspective tells us how we may be invited to understand the context of a woman like her in this story. This was written several years after the event. But in these words, I think you can picture Mary as an older woman looking back with, with the eyes of clarity, the, the clarity that only comes with time. And I suspect she told it to Luke something like this. I was engaged to Joseph when the angel Gabriel came to the town where I was raised, population four or 500 people. I knew everybody and they knew me. And Gabriel greeted me by telling me that I was favored by God and that God was with me. And I was literally stunned, not only by the sight of the angel, but by his message. Luke 1, 30, do not be afraid for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And I thought to myself, a virgin conception, the son of God, the throne of David, an endless kingdom. And Luke, it was, it was heady stuff. In fact, in those moments... I had all kinds of, of feelings which rushed over me. I was poor. I was 16 years old. I was a girl from backwoods of nowhere. In Nazareth, of course, everybody knew me. In fact, all of these circumstances that were going to come my way were out of my control. In fact, how everybody was going to think of me from here forward was out of my control too. And so she says, it wasn't really my faith as if I as if I just pulled myself out of it. No, my joy had to come from the object of my faith. You see, don't you, from Mary's story, it doesn't matter if you're 16 or if you're 60. When you feel a sense of being out of control in the circumstances of your life, or you have no control over what others think of you, then simply to trust the Lord in that space is a test of faith. In fact, it's hard to find joy in the Lord unless you believe and choose to believe the character of God. This has been called the first 
Christmas carol. It's been called the, the greatest hymn which was ever written. Why? Well, because it is not only meant to point us to Christ, who is offered as Mary's Savior and your Savior, but this song actually does what carols and hymns are meant to do. That is, in the midst of fear, in the midst of a life which is full of uncertainty, they are actually intended to lift your head, to exalt the name of the Lord, to sing of His character, to believe upon the Lord who promises to save His people. Your feelings are so often the enemy of joy. But here's a passage that says, when faith in Christ speaks louder than your feelings, you find joy. I have simply two points this morning, man's chief end and God's eternal character. So we're going to start with man's chief end. We're primarily looking simply at the words of Mary's song, verses 46 to 55. But it really would be impossible to understand Mary's song without hearing the comment that Elizabeth makes before Mary begins to speak. Elizabeth tells us that the blessing of joy that Mary is about to express is is like a tree which grows from deep roots of faith. Verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In fact, a a major part, says says Elizabeth, is is that faith was the thing that buoyed her, her soul. You recognize, of course, that God speaks to Mary very specific things concerning how she will serve the Lord, concerning what would take place in the coming days, that she was to give birth to the the Christ himself. But the Bible says that the blessing that Mary enjoys is a blessing that also belongs to everyone else who would ever believe upon the Lord as a faithful God, who would recognize that the King of heaven is a king who is worthy of my trust. And so Elizabeth's testimony of Mary's faith sounds almost exactly like Abraham's. You remember Genesis chapter 15? There's a passage before chapter 15 in chapter 12 when Abraham is 75 years old and God calls him to get up and leave his home and go to a place and he says, you're going to live like you're an alien in that foreign land. You're not going to have a home. It's called Canaan, but I promise you, I'm going to make you the father of many nations and I will give you an offspring, an inheritance, and you will be a blessing to the whole world. Ten years later, with still no child, and his wife and he are so old. He's in his mid-80s at this point. No offense to anybody in their mid-80s. It's too late to have children. Abraham says, how do I know, God, that you promised that you'd give me a son? How do I know you're ever going to really give me a son? In other words, my own feelings and my circumstances haven't changed at all. How can I believe you? And God says, by his mercy and grace, let's walk outside real quick. Look up in the sky and count the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. It was was a massive promise. And given the context, it would have been really difficult to believe. Yet the Bible says in Genesis 15 verse 6 that Abraham believed the Lord and God counted that faith to him as righteousness. And so basically Mary and Abraham knew that God would fulfill the promise because they knew that he was worthy of trust. The stars in the sky, that's a big promise. Uh, God himself will dwell in my own womb. That's a massive promise. But you see, don't you, that it is faith in his trustworthiness that made it possible 
to surrender both fears and questions back to the Lord in humble submission. You should hear that. In your own life, you have fears and questions. And the very essence of faith is to say, my God is so trustworthy that I can surrender those back in humble submission to him. But you see too, don't you, that, that, that the blessing for Mary is not found in believing the Lord once. Yes, Abraham and Mary believed God's word, but real life fears and testing and trials demanded that they would continue to trust the Lord's goodness. That's actually why the Bible repeats that phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.7, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.38. So here's a, here's a lesson directly from the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you exercise faith and trust his plans and his purposes in your own life, when you take God at his word, not just one time, but continually, Mary says you're actually living out the purpose for which you were created. That is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. It's actually the the communion that Adam had in the Garden of Eden. And that is still your own life purpose. You can hear it, can't you? A teenage girl found it. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, so many of you know it. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's actually precisely what Mary says in verse 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord. That is, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices. That is, it takes joy in. It it enjoys God, my Savior. This is simple parallelism. She's using two different words to describe her inner being. There is virtually no difference in the Bible between the spirit and the soul of a person. One pastor explained the spirit and the soul simply as the immaterial core of your personal being, and that's actually all it is. But that's helpful because that's what the spirit and the soul is. When you see that, you recognize that what Mary sings about is something which is so much deeper than religion. You'll hear people, especially this time of year, say, you know, I need to, I need to get right with God. I need to put God back in my life, maybe Jesus too, as if they're walking through a cafeteria and they have a tray and their tray's almost full, but I think I'll grab God and, and put him on my tray as another side dish. And Mary says, no, I've actually been so moved at the core of my being, not because I reached out and I got God, but because he got me at my inner being. Friends, you and I need to learn from this teenage girl. There is no joy in salvation unless you know you need it. Quick side comment. The Council of Trent which took place in the Roman Catholic Church in northern Italy between 1545 and 1563. That council declared a doctrine which had never been known in all of church history and and is absolutely counter to the scriptures itself. That council declared that Mary was forever without sin. Pope Pius 
the ninth himself comes back, 1854, and he goes beyond what the Council of Trent, he says, he declared that Mary was free from original sin and she committed no actual sins of her own. Then why would she rejoice in a savior if she does not need a savior? There is no joy in salvation for those who need no salvation. Those who don't need a savior have no rejoicing when they find one. Mary knows that she is in need of a savior and she finds joy in having one. Verse 47, my spirit takes deep consolation and great joy in the fact that God really is my savior. She's a sinner just like you are. But I can't help but wonder if you and I do not struggle to find joy in the Christ who is ours because our sense is dulled over our own awareness of sin and thereby our our sense is dulled of our need of a Savior. For Mary and for you, real life sins must lead to real life trusting in a real life Savior in order to have the real life joy which is offered so the reason that faith in Christ leads to joy is it's, it's not something that you add into your life. Christ must become the source of your whole life. I mean, let's be honest. Mary, like you, is going to have shaky days where she will be tested and she will be tried by the realities of life. But she says, my soul can glorify God and enjoy him because he's really the anchor of my whole being. He's a trustworthy God. We'll talk about more more of that in a second. Let Let me say one last thing on this point. And that is that the world and perhaps your own fleshly thoughts will tell you that these two things are in conflict. That the glory of God and enjoyment itself are in opposition to each other. As if to glorify God is to minimize joy And to experience joy is to minimize God's glory in your life. Here's a teenage girl from real life experience saying, no, in fact, the two go hand in hand. When I consider God's goodness to me, I want to praise him for what he's done. And I find deep joy in who he is. That's why the rest of this song is actually about who he is. When faith in Christ speaks louder than your feelings, you find joy. And so we've got man's chief end. Now it's Turn and look at God's eternal character. What makes this a a great Christmas carol, maybe the greatest hymn of all time, is that Mary's song doesn't leave us gazing at Mary. In fact, it doesn't have any of the sentimentality of so many of the songs that we love at Christmas. Long ago, my wife figured out that in order for us, for me, to not be grumpy when we hang ornaments on the Christmas tree, as we put on Amy Grant's Christmas album from the mid-80s. We play that every year at Christmas, and we all love it. There is one song that strikes me particularly every single year, and that album, it is a, a tender Tennessee Christmas. And it's meaningful to me because I'm from Tennessee. But I imagine when I hear that song, things that really never were exactly perfection of all past Christmases that ever existed. Why do I say that? You got favorite songs too at Christmas time. But you should recognize that Mary's song 
has nothing of sentimentality. It has everything of real life substance. William Lane says to magnify means to enlarge. And what Mary wants is to enlarge her own vision of God. And in fact, that's what the rest of the song does for each of us. It not only proclaims the grounds for, and the foundation for her praise, it also is intended to keep us from becoming self-centered as if, well, this is what God has done for me, therefore I will, I will praise him. No, Mary says, this is what God has done for me, but moreover, this is really who God is. It's his character. One pastor pointed out that you can actually see his character laid out as if God took on human form. He's a spirit. He doesn't have any of the things I'm about to describe. But this is the way the Bible condescends to our, our thoughts. He's got an eye and an arm and a mouth. First, we'll start with his eye, verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Let me be really clear. In the ancient world, in, in the nation of Israel, females enjoyed almost no dignity and no honor from the people around them. And a teenage girl would have enjoyed even less than that. And then you add to that Nazareth, which is mocked even by the Jews, and you recognize it would be difficult to describe a more lowly condition but Mary says that's the background upon which the Lord has chosen to, to show us the bright shining glory of his eye so that it is all the more comforting. In fact, it is God's character to see all things and all people and to see the condition of his servants and to know. Do you know that the Lord knows your fears? That he sees and knows your pain that he knows the things which keep you up at night and the circumstances that make you wonder, does he see me at all? Sinclair Ferguson points out how fitting that a young girl should be the one to point this out. Because every teenage girl, maybe every teenage boy has moments where you wonder if anybody sees. Not just whether friends see, but does the Lord see as you, as you walk through the hallways of your own school and you wonder, am I invisible? And all of those feelings can cloud your sense of faith. Those, those moments when you lay your head on the pillow at night and your eyes are, are filled with tears. Does God see? Yes, he sees. Every person who's ever tried to live by faith, trusting in the Lord has moments where you ask that question. Does God really see me? More than that, if he sees me, does he care? But it's not just when you're a teenager, is it? That same question strikes you when you graduate from high school and you move on to college. In some sense, you arrive and you feel alone. Does God see me and care? And then you graduate and you move on to some random city with a job that's mm, mediocre at best. And you feel alone and you wonder, does God care? Does he see me? Or you lose a loved one and you're grieved or you feel a sense of betrayal by those you thought were your friends and you grieve and you feel alone and you say, does God see me? Does he care? And Mary would say to you, yes, yes, yes. In every circumstance, the Lord sees and he cares in your lowest, most humble, needy places. Would you remember that as Christmas approaches? That it doesn't matter if you're a teenage girl or you're an old man or somewhere in between. All of us have 
moments where we wonder if God sees. And Mary says he does. But in the Bible, the watching eye of God is always a sign that he is also poised to act. That's why Mary says in verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So his eye is his character. God sees, says Mary, because he's holy, meaning he's utterly different from all the rest of us. But it would be possible, wouldn't it, for there to be a God who was holy but not merciful. And Mary says, no, this God is both, which is comforting. I want you to recognize something here with verse 50. It hangs in between the eye and the arm that I'm about to describe. And it does two things. First, it shows us that in seeing, God is prepared and he's ready to extend mercy to those who would revere and honor him. God's character is now revealed in his eye. The second thing verse 50, one, verse 50 does is it actually introduces us to, a, to the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. How does he show strength with his arm? Well, this God who is both holy and compassionate is ready and willing to extend mercy to those who would fear him. But this is the strength of God, which is shown to us in the gospel of Christ, that God literally turns the values of the earth upside down. Everything the world treasures in his economy is exactly the opposite from what he treasures. Verse 51, he scatters the proud in their own thoughts. Verse 52, he brings down the mighty. Verse 53, he sends the rich away empty. And then at the same time, verse 51, he exalts the humble. Verse 53, he fills the hungry. It's not that God hates those who have earthly power or position or money. But it is that those who trust in those things are often so unwilling and so unable to come to Christ for mercy because they have so much to trust in in their own strength. And so God displays this strength in his own arm by extending his mercy exclusively to those who know they need him, to those who look to him for help. And so Mary proclaims the gospel of an upside-down kingdom of Christ. And it is full of comfort and hope. Friends, if you think you have it all together, and you are proud of who you are and what you have accomplished, and your confidence rests solely in your own strength, and your earthly wealth makes you feel secure, and you sense that you need nothing that God has to offer... He says, I, I'll show strength by scattering you, by bringing you down and sending you away from my presence. And then on the other hand, if you feel the sense which you are already in pieces, I'm already all to pieces. I'm spiritually scattered. God's mercy will bring you back together in Christ by giving you mercy. And if you feel spiritual weakness, God will strengthen you in his grace. If you know your spiritual poverty, God will give you the riches of his grace. What could Mary say to believers like us who live in a world which at times feels comfortable and wealthy and safe? She would say, never tire Never outgrow, never lose sight of your own spiritual bankruptcy. 
You see, in the same way that God's eye gives you comfort when you might ask the question, does he see? Yes, God really does see. God's arm provides comfort when you ask the question, will he ever act? What can he do with my broken heart? What can he do with my sense of weakness or my my lack of inherent goodness, my spiritual poverty? Friends, that's precisely the recipe with which he is prepared and willing to act. He can and will extend mercy and grace to you in such measures that the Bible strains to find the words to explain it. It simply calls it, Ephesians 1, the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1 again, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Some of you need to remember that as Christmas approaches. That through the coming of Christ, God acts for his people by flipping the values of the world upside down. What would it look like for you to lean into your spiritual poverty this time of year so that you could treasure his mercy more than you treasure all the things of this world? God's character is revealed in his eye and his arm, but also in his mouth. Verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now Mary's song up to this point is a compilation of lots of different passages of Scripture. She very directly quotes Hannah's song from 1 Samuel chapter 2, but she also directly quotes and makes allusions to passages in Genesis, Deuteronomy, Job, Psalms, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. It's full of Scripture. What is she connecting to Abraham? She says you can see God's character in the fact that with his mouth he makes great promises and he has kept every promise that he's ever made. And in the same way that God's eye comforts you when you would ask the question, does he see? And God's arm would comfort you when you ask, will he act? God's mouth would comfort you when you ask, can I trust him? Is this actually going to be safe? And Mary says, yes, you can trust him because he has been faithful to everything he's ever said and to every person that he's ever said it. What have we said up to this point? We have said that Mary finds joy by knowing man's chief end and by knowing God's eternal character. But it is impossible to ignore that Mary's joy in this moment is linked to the fact that the divine Son of God actually dwells within her. More than that, His presence and His being will continue to grow. Do you recognize that if you belong to Christ, that exact same reality is true for you? Not that the physical Jesus grows inside of you as it did in a pregnant Mary, but that the Almighty God, through the power of Christ, has implanted the Holy Spirit within you. And His presence, which has been planted in there, is meant by God to continue to grow. And that Spirit ultimately testifies to Christ. And it's the one thing within you that is the source of the joy for all believers who really follow Christ. So that when 
Faith in Christ speaks louder than your feelings. You really do find joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would comfort your people by your word. Convict us where we need it. Would you let us hear your voice? Would you cause your word through the ministry of your spirit planted in us to grow rich fruit? And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.